if you as a Christian don't care about your roots, don't care about your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, who are not just suffering physically, uh, who are suffering economically, or who are facing death, then you really also have to question whether you're a real Christian. Join the best in the movement. It's Conservative Conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Marlo Slayback and Tom Saruf. Today's guest is Father Benedict Kiley, who is a Catholic priest incarnated in the personal ordinary of Our Lady of Walsingham, born in London and ordained in Canterbury, England in 1994. Father Ben has spent most of his priestly ministry in the United States. In the summer of 2014, Father Ben perceived a call to devote his entire priestly ministry to aid and advocacy for persecuted Christians, especially in the Middle East. Founded Nazarian.org, Nazarian.org, a 501c3 charity based in Stowe, Vermont, and with the per- with the permission and support of his ordinary, Father Ben divides his time between the U.S., U.K., and the Middle East, speaking, preaching, and writing, trying to focus attention on the plight of persecuted Christians around the world. He has visited war-torn Iraq on multiple occasions since 2015, and has visited Syria and Lebanon, where Nazarene is now supporting a number of family businesses. Welcome to the podcast, Father. Thank you so much, Marlo. Thank you, Tom. So just to kind of brief our, our listeners today, you might have noticed Father Ben speaking at, Nas- at the National Conservative National Conservatism Conference that was in the U.S. this time around in in the fall at least. And uh, but me and Father Ben have known each other for quite a few years actually. When I was a reporter specifically on the topic of persecution, he was such a knowledgeable resource about the topic. And of course, my my heritage is uh, Syrian, so we kind of bonded over his work in, in the region alongside the persecuted. So it's it's much needed. And I, I've always had a special place in my heart for, for his work and, and the people that he supports. So I really appreciate you joining us today. And I think, you know, throughout the podcast, we want to focus on your work with the persecuted because it is a subject that is easy to overlook because it's not, you know, it's not in our backyards that we see people who are struggling to, you know, keep their livelihoods afloat because of their religion or who are fleeing. I think this is the kind of the more, at least in Syria, what we what we have seen over the last few decade, decades is the brain drain effect taking place, especially among educated Christians who have left the country. I mean, this is, my parents are a perfect example. They left in the 1980s, 1990s, came to the U.S. and, you know, they're educated. And so Syria has been kind of left with Obviously, the the political and the, the issues that followed from the war, making it even less of a desirable place for many to stay. And if, if you're a Christian, you're a minority. So, if your entire village has left, then what's what's remaining for you to be able to hand a lifestyle that you know that is prosperous over to your own children, let alone keep your own family and household afloat, especially with a lot of sh- the sanctions and other types of uh, economic strife that they faced over the last decade or so. So we'd love to hear more about obviously that topic throughout the podcast. But I think starting where a lot of our listeners may may have you know maybe a familiar may find you familiar is from your remarks at the National Conservatism Conference this past fall, um, which I believe was in Orlando or Miami. But there was a clip that was circulating on Twitter that I thought just encapsulated kind of my gripes with I guess nominal conservatism today, or perhaps if we 
go back to like 2014, the there is this kind of uh, stratification or division between fiscal conservatism and social conservatism, where there was a kind of a social libertarian strain within the conservative landscape. I think that has slightly been disabused a little bit, just because we've seen so many marks of just degeneration, you know, such as like the the issues plaguing schools today with gender ideology, things like that. I think that's kind of put a reactionary kind of strain within, especially maybe conservative parents. But I really want to talk about your remark about the conservative party in Britain and how conservatives are social conservatives or they aren't conservatives at all. I think that's extremely important to emphasize. So I'd love to hear more about, first of all, you telling us about what's the difference between the political landscape, let's let's talk also socially, the social political landscape in Britain and the one in the U.S. in terms of what, you know, what does, what are the priorities of the different conservative factions in both countries? And is it, it seems like it might be a little bit more concerning the issues facing the conservative party in the U.K. than in the U.S. right now for all of our issues. (laughs) But I'd love to hear kind of more about what, what makes you, um, so concerned for the future of, of conservatism in, in your home country? Well, I think first and foremost, the problem is there isn't such a thing now as a conservative party in England. I mean, everything you just said is illustrative of the fact that the conservative party in England is not socially conservative at all. It's during the time the conservatives have been in government, both in coalition with the Liberal Democrats and now with a very large majority. That's what people forget. Boris Johnson was elected with a majority of 80 seats, 80 MPs. That is massive. I mean, he could have done some extraordinary things if he was a man of a moral character, but also of principle and conservative principle. He would have faced many, many battles, but he could have done some extraordinary things. The fact is he didn't. So basically, the, the problem is in England, really now Britain, but I really always talk about England because as the listeners may or may not know, Britain is, is it's not federal, but the, the different countries that make up the United Kingdom have a lot more power now in regional parliaments. But in England, particularly, uh, social conservatism is, is a sort of part-time hobby, a bit like stamp collecting. You're, you're a bit of an oddball if you're a social conservative, like being religious as well. That's the other thing. You see, Britain, or rather again, England, Religion is is a real minority now. I mean, we are probably one of the most secular countries in Europe after, say, Denmark or Sweden. Tony Blair's spin doctor famously said, uh, we don't do God in British politics, which is very unlike US politics. So you're considered a bit of an oddball. You're a bit strange. And if you're a very committed Christian, a committed Catholic, obviously a pro-life Catholic, which is the only kind of Catholic you can be, you're strange. So my remarks at the at NatCon were, yes, you you can't be a proper conservative if you're not social a social conservative. We have economic conservatism, although even now, I mean, this is the biggest spending government we've had in in decades. Everything seems to have fallen apart. Also, we can't keep a prime minister in office for more than about three months. Uh, it, it, it's a, it's it's collapsed. The whole thing, conservatism has collapsed in this country. And the hope of national conservatism, I think, is partly to do with nationalism in the right way, because I wasn't arguing again from any political party. I'm not a member of any party. I don't think a priest really should ever advertise that. 
but I do believe in national conservatism. It's not fascist. It's not extreme right. It's not alt right. All these labels. It's about a, a, a healthy uh, regard for one's own country, one's own culture, one's own nation. But the interesting thing in Britain, and now I am sp- talking about Britain, in Britain you can be a Welsh nationalist, no problem. You can be an Irish nationalist, you can be a Scottish nationalist. In fact, the Scottish nationalists are in power in Scotland. But dare you be an English nationalist? No, you will be immediately called either a football hooligan or, or a fascist or, or some kind of extreme right-wing person. Why is it only England that you're not allowed to celebrate your own nation? So this is part of all this brew that's going on. Back to the, to the essential point about conservatism, the, the, the great work I think that the national conservatives are doing is bringing all this to the fore because being a nationalist has such now, has so many bad connotations. And of course, the left will immediately I mean, they're going, the, 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 the press coverage of the last, this NatCon conference in, in Miami was far bigger than any of the other conferences because obviously the left is beginning to realize this is a serious movement and uh, um, God bless it, thank God for that. It doesn't mean we all agree, it doesn't mean we all, I think one of the things you will both probably agree, being good, solid conservatives, is we conservatives can argue with one another and argue with others. Sir Roger Scruton said that so famously. We can have good debates and even raise our voices and even get impassioned. But then we don't hate each other. We'll probably have a good drink at the end and and some of your food, Marlowe, and everything will be wonderful. But uh, for some reason, the left is incapable of of discussion today. So I'm just enjoying uh, from my priestly role because I, I also think it's part of my work to give the proper catholic view of things i'm just enjoying this this debate that's that's brewing away now maybe we could i'd like to dive into more the latter point because i was at natcon i got to sit and watch your speech live i enjoyed it very much and towards the end as you were just alluding to now was you were suggesting that current conservatives could have our debates and argue with each other but we ought not i guess collapse the various sub-factions especially the sub-factions of the new right basically take those more minute differences, which are still important, and use that to collapse what is a growing movement, hopefully something with teeth and that could affect the actual political landscape. And I argue the 2022 midterms in America, at least with J.D. Vance, that's a national conservative candidate. So maybe we're already starting to see fruits of that. But with this idea of sort of the inter-conservative debates, how do we, from my vantage point, at least, I'd say, I think one of what would happen is either in order for them to avoid fighting each other, one of the groups might have to take a junior partnership role or just a certain spirit of political ecumenism. What are the prospects for that in your, in your view? Well, you were probably alluding to my slightly sarcastic, but, but, but I think making the point about the integralists that, you know, I, I have friends who are integralists, but I think I think I joked about how many integralists can dance on the head of a pin. But I mean, it, this is sort of esoteric stuff that is not <laughs> means nothing to to anyone really outside this little bubble. And I just think it's dangerous to be to be getting into these little arguments in the corner. Um, that's why the angel and the pin thing was point joke was made because this this isn't dealing with the big issues. Um, 
as I said, I've got certain friends who are who are, would be identified as integralists, but we we have to realize we have a common, and I will use the word enemy. I mean, Archbishop Chaput, the great former Archbishop of of Philadelphia, said in one of his books, I remember because I was struck. Uh, he said, uh, talking about some people on the left, enemies of Christianity in the United States in in Europe, he said they hate us, uh, and I've never forgot that because forgotten that because. That's pretty tough language. It's it's good to hear because they hate us. They hate what we stand for. They hate our defense of life. They hate our defense of marriage between a man and a woman. They hate so many things. And in that sense, they're the enemy. We must love our enemies. We know that and try and uh, help them through to, to discover the truth. But we've also got to be very realistic about what we're facing and we're facing, you know very well in the United States, I know very well about the United States and in Western Europe, we're facing a continuing and growing oppression, not not to the point yet of death. I mean, I remember I was in, in, uh, in Iraq once early on in a refugee camp and I was talking to one of the priests and I said to him, he's actually back in Mosul now in, in, in Iraq, the only Catholic, the only priest in Mosul. Um, I said to him, oh, Father, you know, we're getting our persecution as well. You know, we're... we're and he just looked at me and he said, you haven't had your head cut off yet. And I thought, mm, OK, that's telling me that's true. But I mean, for example, at the uh, National Conservative Conference in Conservatives and Conference in in Brussels last year, Pivy Reisonen was there. Now, she's a name that probably many listeners don't know, but also certainly, for example, in this country, virtually nobody knows her name because they have not covered her case. The Finnish member of parliament former interior minister of Finland who has been prosecuted for quoting the Bible for about marriage between a man and a woman. They're calling her the canary in the coal mine in Europe because it will eventually mean that the Bible is, is, is hate speech itself. Her case is just not being covered at all in the media here, at all. I doubt it's being covered in the United States. But there is a, a member of parliament being prosecuted in Western Europe for quoting the Bible. So we, we better wake up and our little internecine um, quabbles, squabbles about um, should there be a Catholic uh, state run by a king or, or, the, or the great king or an emperor or Charlemagne coming back from the dead or something. This is, this is really a little silly. We, we've got to focus on banding together and even including our neocon friends at some point. I mean, I hope they've learned their lesson from the invasion of Iraq, Marlo. I think we'd both agree on that. But so that's you know that's my thing that we we just we we better wake up and realize that in in a, in a real war you might not agree with everything your your fellow soldiers agree with, but we're all in the same army. So would you say that you know I don't, I don't want to be divisive, obviously, but well I kind of do because I think <laughs> on on the subject of social conservatism, especially you have issues including abortion that are literally life and death. And I, I think the weight that we need to approach such an issue is not reflective in American political life at all. I mean, I would say, you know, this is the, especially after having my own child, I'm even more so just, I want to amplify just the horrors that we've inflicted on unborn children since, you know, for the last few decades. And I just don't see that urgency among some conservatives who think that it's a, well, well, you know, quote unquote conservatives who are seem to be more in interested in kind of the materialist 
aspects of you know economics and not that those things aren't important i think making sure that we have sound economic policy is certainly important and i think there is a flirtation with certain changes to you know free market capitalism that could that do not lend themselves to not only not prosperity but not you know a fair approach to economics and the individual talents of of Americans. So I guess my question is for you, what's your sense of how big tent should we be to make sure that we achieve a culture of life, but also being able to pursue the truth, whether that's the truth of marriage and what marriage stands for and what it is, or, you know, trying to obviously the the victory this past summer in the Supreme Court was was major, even though, you know, for in a lot of states, we're not even we don't even match the same types of pol- abortion policies that like France has. Like, you know, a lot of European countries actually have less. They have abortion policies that are not as far in gestational age as in, in some U.S. states, which is very unfortunate that the U.S. isn't even able to you know, dial back the age in which a mother can kill her child. So obviously I'm, I'm for complete abolition, but I think that's just kind of puts into stark relief kind of where we're at in the U.S. So yeah, I, I guess I'd like to kind of hear your thoughts on where, is there a place for non-social people who are right of center? I guess right people who are right of center who are not social conservatives per se, but perhaps line up with us on other on other topics. First thing that comes to mind is like the intellectual dark web people who I'm quite frankly, I'm quite skeptical of them. I don't think they're I think they're just kind of anti-woke, which is great to have on your side, but it's not you're not a conservative, right? You're not quite on on the same page as us. So yeah, interested in your thoughts, whether that what whether that's your analysis of what's happening in the US and some of these other kind of factions that pop up. But also, you, you just mentioned in, in Britain, it seems like so, so, social conservatism is kind of off the table. <laughs> like, it's not something you even want to flaunt in political life to start with. So yeah, we'd love to hear what you what you think about that. Well, I think, I think part of it is, as I said earlier, that, 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 that this new movement, the, diff, the different movements are brewing together. And that's that's exciting that this stuff is bubbling to, uh, and part of the debate, which I think is certainly shifting more in America, which was needed and has been needed for a long time, is for conservatives to realize that being a social conservative also involves things like labor law and care of workers and things that were just, it's not all about making money. And I think that's been part of the problem. So I, I think some, some of these debates are very good. You mentioned Tom J.D. Vance, and there's, there's a figure, he, not popular with everyone, but a man who is bringing all this stuff into the pot. And But the non-negotiables, I'm a priest. I call myself a John Paul II priest, so I was ordained in 1994. John Paul II and Pope Benedict, who we've just lost, these giant figures, these these literally giant figures in, in our lifetime. John Paul, the man who, who said there's the basic non-negotiable is, is life from the beginning, from conception to natural death. There's just no discussion, or there should be no discussion in that sense. Then how you deal with that, obviously, without being sort of wimpy, one one does have to talk about what's the care for women, how do we provide enough, all these sort of things. It's not just, it's not good enough to just be against abortion. So there's a lot more the church can do, communicate better. For one, I think it's always very important 
to hear women speaking. It, it just, you know, having a clerical collar coming on and talking about abortion is is just, well, in theory, everyone should expect that. Unfortunately, not these days, but in theory, everyone should expect that. But I think it's very important for, for women to be at the forefront in the pro-life debate, and, and they are. Well, I don't, there isn't a debate in the pro-life movement. But yeah, all that, the rest of that stuff, that all the stuff about labor law and, and workers and proper even as so what what how far the government works in people's lives i mean this is this is this is what what what's happened in england now is the is the government especially even more amplified since covid is people really have put their faith they don't like the government they they will hate the government but they want someone to take care of them as it were from 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 birth to death and sort everything out for them and that's also part of the debate of the limits of government so there's there's an awful lot of stuff brewing and in particular i think in the united states what what is what is really interesting is that this is happening the problem is as i say in britain it's it's just sort of beginning i believe the no no i know that the next national conservatism conference is going to be in london in may which is taking a taking the battle into enemy territory, really. I hope they've got all the uh, barricades and the castle and everything ready. But uh, that's going to be good. That's going to be interesting. Who's going to speak? What are they going to say? There'll, again, be plenty of debate. So interesting things are happening. But we are, as you both know very well, we are really marginalized. We're much more marginalized in England. But even in the United States, I mean, one has to think hard where in the media real conservatism, and I mean real, what we're, ta- we're talking about, real conservatism is heard, not not sort of the crazy extremes, but where is where is good debate? Where, where can you have what, think of uh, um, William F. Buckley used to have with, with a firing line, that you could have two or three, four people sitting around having a really good debate, not filled with, with sound bites, that... That seems to be missing. It's happening on podcasts, thanks be to God. But for a wider audience, I think there's a real place for that where where, where discussion, civilized discussion, can occur. Maybe we can turn now to your work with Nazarene, your organization, and thinking big picture to start. Could you tell us about how you got involved with this ministry of helping persecuted Christians in the Middle East? And then also... Since Marlo and I are both of Levantine background, I think Marlo is much more informed and aware of the state of things over there than I am. So for the, for my benefit and the benefit of perhaps some of our listeners who are have maybe a low resolution image or a low resolution general picture of what's going on in the Middle East, can you give us a sort of state of the ground count of what's happening there right now? Well, they have a low resolution image because they're not allowed to hear. This is, again, part of the grave scandal that the the worldwide persecution of Christians, which is worse now than at any time in human history, is just not being covered. The massacres, I mean, huge massacres of Christians in in Africa, particularly in Nigeria, I mean, thousands, thousands, just hardly being covered. It's extraordinary. But yes, the Middle East in particular, I I was a parish priest, parish priest in Stowe, Vermont, very nice parish, lots of lots of uh, activities. I never skied. I thought that was mentally crazy to go down a mountain on two sticks, but plenty of après ski. But, uh, you know, I was happy, happy there. I like being a parish priest. But I remember sort of 
moment, as it were, was I heard in August of 2014 that for the first time in nearly 2,000 years, there was no mass in Mosul. Mosul in Iraq. Mosul is, for, for the listeners who know their Bibles, Mosul is Nineveh. Nineveh is where Jonah preached. The tomb of Jonah is in Mosul. I've been there. ISIS blew it up. And I remember just hearing there's no mass because all the Christians had been driven out by ISIS. And I just thought, this is just so awful. What can we do? What can we do? I, I preached about it and things began to brew. We were, in those days, a lot of people were, were wearing those rubber bracelets that advertised something. And I thought, well, we could wear a rubber bracelet uh, with the Arabic N, the Nun, and uh, which looks like a like a smiley face, except with one dot uh, for Arabic speakers. They know what I'm talking about. But ISIS marked people's houses with the Nun, N, for Nasrani, Nasrian, um, meaning Christian, and saying, Christians live here, leave, convert, or die. There was no other choice. So we made these, I was very lucky in my parish. I had a, a man who, who did made products. Uh, we got the rubber bracelets. Then we made lapel pins with the nun. And very quickly uh, through through journalists, etc., it took off. Um, and I went to Iraq for the first time in 2015, May of 2015, and all the thousands and thousands of refugees were in Erbil in Kurdistan and other parts living in living in poor conditions, I mean, thrown out of their homes. And it just, and then I went again and again, and it gradually just took over to the point where I believed, I thought that the Lord is calling me to do what I'm doing now, um, to speak, preach, write, advocate, do whatever I can as a priest for the persecuted. And also our charity, Nazarene, uh, which I, I know at the end, I'll be able to say something about it, but it is important. It has an S in it, N-A-S-A-R-E-A-N. If you give it to the one with the Z, they've got uh, $34 million. I've got $34,000. So don't give it, um, I won't say don't give it to the one with the Z, but um, we have a very specific, very nuanced, as it were, thing. We do advocacy, me, because really I'm the only <laughs> person in the charity, um, but I have the full permission of my bishop to, to do this. And we have the aid is very specific. We mini microfinance small family businesses so that they stay in their country, which is also links in with our conservative discussions, because this is the answer to migration. If you keep someone in their own home and their own country, but they've got a job, you don't just give them charity to do nothing. So we give, we identify through people on the ground, we're very working with the church on the ground, people who want to start a business or they've started a little business. We give them, we don't loan, we give them a certain amount of money, not too much. You think for most Americans, the thought of a startup for around $10,000 is nothing. So uh, in Iraq now and in Syria and in Lebanon, so that's what we do. And, and thanks be to God, they're all working successfully. I'll be in Iraq in two weeks time again to see how people are doing. But back to your other part of the question, Marlo would uh, certainly know plenty about what's going on in Syria. Lebanon and Syria, just disasters. I mean, again, it's tragic. When I was in Lebanon in, in June, people here in England said, oh, you're going to Lebanon? Great, that, that'll be great. Well, we're going to the beaches. And I just sort of looked dumbfounded. Do you know what's going on in Lebanon? They have 22 hours a day with no power. They have, they're running out of food. They run out of medicine. They, they, it's a collapsed state. Syria is even worse, because partly because of its reliance on Lebanon. 
These countries are, Syria is suffering even more because of sanctions, international sanctions. We don't even have to discuss how bad the regime is or how good the regime is. It's the ordinary people who are suffering. And this is the Holy Land. I, I always say to people, the Holy Land is not just Israel, Palestine. The Holy Land is Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, and to a certain extent, Iraq. This is where the Lord walked with his disciples. This church is 2,000 years old. And I always speak passionately about it because if you as a Christian don't care about your roots, don't care about your fellow uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are not just suffering physically, uh, who are suffering economically, or who are facing death, then you really also have to question whether you're a real Christian. So things are very, 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 very bad. And Marlo, I, I know, knows plenty about what's going on in Syria. Yeah, it's it's crazy because I remember, I mean, I, I reported on persecution for a while and, you know, my, my family still lives in Syria. And I try to remind, politely, of course, fellow Christians that sometimes, you know, they, they might be in shock that I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm not a convert from Islam or, or something like that. I, there was actually this one time that I guess someone who was trying to evangelize to my father, my, my dad owns a salon in Pittsburgh, and they must have thought that he was Muslim because he spoke Arabic. And they must have asked him, you know, where he's from. He said Syria. And so they brought him a Bible that was in Arabic, I think, trying to convert him. And, you know, I wish I could tell this person, like, my, my family was Christian when a lot of Europe was worshiping trees. Um, and it's right. kind of this, it's, it's obviously, I don't want to be, um, you know, like, combative about it, but it, it does come to, I don't, I don't want to say ignorance, but... Well, it, is, you know, it we, is ignorance. It is ignorance. It's not their fault necessarily, but it is ignorance. Right. Yeah, it is. I mean, obviously not their fault. But so there is this interest among America, not only Americans generally, but of course, along among American Christians to, you know, pray for their brothers and sisters in this region that has just been rife with, you know, just turbulent political and obviously war and other types of conflict over the past several decades. But it's also, I guess, something that really needs emphasized is that we are not helpless in terms like our I, I don't want to get too much in the details but obviously the, the Iraq war was did not bode well for Christians in the Middle East it was in fact a disaster for them and you know when we talk on about migration people don't want to migrate in many cases um, my parents were they, I, I guess I would call them I mean, they're immigrants. They came here largely because they did not see a future for themselves and their children in Syria. I suspect that's that is the case for thousands of immigrants, whether it's from the, the Middle East or beyond. But also, it does come. And I remember whenever I last saw you, I was in Hungary, and we were in um, for the the Christian Persecution Conference. And what I really liked that the Hungarian government was doing was it sounds like a lot like what your work is is giving resources and funding to businesses in these areas that are that have faced conflict, that there is not much of future for Christians there, you know, apparently. Can I can I just give a, can I interrupt you and, and give a plug? Yeah, yeah. I always give a plug for the Hungarians wherever wherever I go, because, yeah, you mentioned we were at the World Conference on, on Christian persecution. And this, again, may, may, probably many in the audience, certainly I've spoken to newspaper editors and others in the media who don't know, Hungary is the only government in the world that has a specific government ministry 
for persecuted Christians. Started in 2016, Viktor Orban saw the the suffering, speaking to the, I believe, the Assyria, Syriac Orthodox Patriarch, a wonderful man, Patriarch Ephraim, and various others. And he immediately, within, I think, two months of meeting them, uh, founded this ministry, State Secretariat for Persecuted Christians, not noticed the State Secretariat for Diversity and Inclusivity and General Persecution. It was called the State Secretariat for Persecuted Christians. And they have, for a small country, helped rebuild towns. Uh, they don't specifically focus on businesses, but they're rebuilding, they're educating, they've, they've spread out now to the persecution in Africa and various other places. It's remarkable. And I remember a Syrian, Syriac Orthodox bishop saying to me, the place he feels the most accepted in the world is in Hungary. And I find that very, very impressive. The Hungarians have been, they haven't been making a big song and dance about it. In fact, I often tease them because I say, your PR is terrible. You know, nobody knows <laughs> what you're doing. Uh, yeah. But God, God bless the Hungarians. I mean, I say God bless yeah. the Hungarians for many other reasons as well, but they're not perfect. None of us are. But their work for persecuted Christians is extraordinary, extraordinary. And they specifically... They do something the U.S. was unwilling to do until towards the end of the Trump administration. They don't go through things like the U.N. and these massive NGOs. They go straight to the church, right to the ground, directly, because as we know, unfortunately, in these worlds, there's a lot of corruption, a lot of stuff disappears. No, this gets gets where it's meant to go. So it's wonderful. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. And I was so heartened to see that approach because... The, the bureaucratic hurdles just, I mean, I, I was in Syria in 2017 and I'm like, where are all these resources going? I don't see them. In, I don't see them in this village. I don't see them in, in anywhere. So to have that as, you know, to have Hungary and um, other, you know, in your ministry in their corner, I'm sure means the world to them. And it, it means a lot to me as well, um, having family still there. And it almost, I don't want to say it's selfish, but just for, you know, listeners who perhaps uh, aren't from similar backgrounds as, as I am. And, and I'm sure, you know, Father Ben, you've probably heard this before too. These people don't want to leave their countries. They leave because they have to. It's, it's devastating to see, you know, I, when I was in Syria as a child, you know, the, at least how I remember it, it was, you know, it's a village that has multi-generations. People are going to church. There was a sense of stability, even though obviously the, generally speaking, compared to westernized countries, it was not quite you know, there was obviously the, they were living in conditions that are not comparable to ours in the US, obviously, but it wasn't as bad as it is now. And over the years, I returned in 2017. And it's just seeing, you know, between people dying, um, just of age, and also the number of people who became part of the diaspora to other countries, you know, among those being the US, but also a lot of went to Australia, I have family that became refugees in Australia just recently, or sought asylum, and Germany, I have cousins in Germany, you know, they're, they're all spread out across the world. So you lose that, that kind of fabric that you used to have of, of the tight knit Middle Eastern family who have stayed in their village for, you know, just generations upon generations. And it's kind of unheard of today in the U.S. to have that. Ironically, you know, I live right across the street from my parents, so I'm trying to replicate that in the West, but that's not something you really see anymore. It's, it's the younger generation has left their country to pursue their careers elsewhere because they don't see a future for themselves. So I guess, what would you say is the number one way that 
besides, you know, just educating themselves in some of the the reasons that Christians are leaving and trying to perhaps donate to charities that can support them and make it a more hospitable place for them to stay. What would you suggest, like, I guess, walking us through the reasons why people are leaving in the first place among the different countries? Obviously, you mentioned electricity shortages in Lebanon, um, not to mention the other political problems that would maybe want cause people to leave, but also, you know, what what are the reasons people are leaving and how can Americans read up on this topic and also support different initiatives to make sure that, you know, they're not leaving because of of these reasons? Well, everything you've said, uh, yes. I mean, obviously, people want a future for their for their children. They want to work. If you can't work, perhaps we can't do much about security. But if you can't work and there's no prospect of work, you will have to leave. And this is one of the main reasons that people are leaving. Lack of the collapse, the economic collapse. Plus, of course, in in Syria, there's still a war. There's an active war going on. I was there in 2019. I hope to go again, please God, inshallah soon. But uh, um, it's very hard to get into now. But uh, it's a wonderful place. I mean, I'm not just saying that to butter you up, uh, Marla, but I just love Damascus. I mean, it's just, you know, that's where St. Paul was converted. You you go, I stayed uh, one street away from Straight Street, which in the Acts of the Apostles were told is where Paul was uh, baptized by Ananias. It's it's just incredible. So, but yeah, they're leaving because of that, war, lack of work, etc., etc., no future, it can seem very hopeless. I know people want to stay and people, Syrians in particular, want to go back if they're able to. Where there's peace and stability, they want to. But if there's economic disaster, they just can't. But Lebanon, the same. I mean, so many Christians and all Lebanese are now are leaving Lebanon because yeah, there's just no, they appear to be no, there appears to be no future. I mean, people are robbing banks to get their own savings because the banks are collapsing. They can't get their 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 money out. You're not allowed to take more than a very small amount. People are literally <laughs> robbing banks to try and get their own savings. It's their money. Um, imagine and they're becoming like national heroes for doing so. Well, exactly. Like, I mean, it's it's it, you can't you can't comprehend. These are people who live very like us in 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 apartment buildings and highly educated, and we just can't imagine living like that. So that sense of despair is tragic. But I know from the church, unfortunately, many in the church, and I've been told this by Syrian bishops and Iraqi bishops, they feel deep down the West doesn't, and we're talking about the Western church, doesn't care about them. And when I say that, obviously people get upset and say, well, we care about them. Of course you do. But it, it has to be demonstrated. I mean, it has to be demonstrated at an official level. I don't think there is enough being said in in the Western Church. Obviously, we talked about that earlier. But so, what can we do? Because people do feel very helpless in in the West when they do have a passion uh, and care for their brethren. Obviously, first prayer. I mean, I always say that prayer. We believe if you're a Christian, you believe in the power of prayer. Otherwise, again, you're not really a Christian. Prayer, consistent prayer, not just once every couple of weeks at Mass. We pray for our persecuted brethren. Lord, hear us, and then that's the end. No daily prayer. Every day, I'm praying for my persecuted brethren. Aid, obviously, charities, not plugging my own, but yes, charities. Uh, you can do something, you can help people. And then advocacy. Every citizen, every voter, 
has the ability to speak to their representatives and say, what are you doing? What's, why are the Christians being ignored? What can we do? Why are we not hearing about it? Advocacy is possible. So we're actually not hopeless. But the last point, if we're not being educated as well, that's why I bring it back both to the church, but also the media. Any Anyone in the media, working in the media, should be, uh, especially a believing Christian, should be uh, including this in their in their in their life in their media work to i was told once and it's very cynical and i hope it's not true i don't believe it is true a senior figure in the media said to me once well persecuted christians that's a ratings killer as though everyone's going to turn off the tv or i I don't think it is i mean obviously it's not well let's find the fun fun facts about persecution We, we can't do that but it can be told in a very i mean for i think my last point would be they are a tremendous witness. The word martyr, of course, means witness. They are a tremendous boost for us in the West. When you see men, and they're not, you know, they're like us. They're sinners. They're weak. They fail. They lie. They Just like us, we're all sinners. But when you see men and women and children who have been willing to lose everything, everything, down to their wedding rings, because they believe in Christ and they will not renounce him, that gives us in the West, who are, uh, as the great Hilaire Belloc once said, we're, we're rather weak, we're rather lacklustre, we're, we're rather lazy. That gives us a boost. I think that's the great gift that they give us. We always think, what can we do for them? But let's think about what they do for us. They give us inspiration. They give us hope. They give us fortitude. Because back to where we started if we are going to face more and more either active or at least some kind of persecution or harassment, we're going to need a bit of that fortitude. And so they, they strengthen. Whenever I go to, to these countries, I always come back strengthened because I think, mm, I hope I would, I hope I'd do that if, if the time, if push came to shove and, and they said, uh, either renounce Jesus or get your head chopped off. I hope I would say, okay, I believe in Jesus and off it goes, but hope it's quick. That's the one thing I do hope. I hope it's quick. I'm not ready for torture. Well, Tom, do you have any last questions before we, that was the, probably the fastest episode we've ever recorded. <laughs> I can't believe we're already 45 minutes in. So unfortunately we do have to wind down. So unless Tom has any questions. Uh, Father, I mean, you mentioned just now that the importance of prayer and seeing as all three of us are Catholics on the episode, would you close the episode and a prayer for peace in the Middle East? I would, and I'm, if I can find it, I'm going into my... I'm, uh, it's actually behind me somewhere. I've got to... Where is it? There it is. I actually have a prayer. We, uh, we put, we've put so far three shrines, uh, one in London and two in America, and we're doing more shrines of, uh, for those who can see this, is an icon of Our Lady uh, in Iraqi bridal dress. And uh, we're, we're trying to put more shrines in, in churches, cathedrals, we're going to put one soon this year in Sweden because the cardinal there recognizes that Sweden has many, many diaspora, Syrian and other Christians from the Middle East. Uh, we're going to put a shrine there. But the, the, the prayer is to Mary, the mother of the persecuted church. So I'll conclude with that. O Mary, mother of the persecuted church, look with love upon your children who suffer for their belief in your son. Enfold them with your love and strengthen them in their trials. Assist them with your maternal care and move us to help them 
by prayer and action. Keep us all under your protecting veil. Amen. That was beautiful. Thank you, Father Ben. Thank you, Marla. Thank you, Tom, for having me. It's been it's been fun. Even though it's serious, it's been fun. Yeah, no, it has been. I, I really appreciate you joining us today. And hopefully some listener, listeners out there are also, you know, invigorated by the and encouraged by the conversation to seek out this topic in prayer and also just looking into the topic more so that it doesn't have to be a, or such a ratings killer, apparently. I, I've actually seen that remark made as well. So hopefully the American public takes more interest in it so that we don't need, you know, as many, uh, we don't, we don't quite need the, the media to take the, the lead on it, but of course it would be nice. So I appreciate you joining us. And of course, is, is there anywhere that um, maybe if listeners want to read more about your work or contribute to charities that you recommend them? I, I know you have Twitter as well. So where can they find you and your work? Well, the easiest thing is to go directly to to the website and it is nazarene.org, N-N-A-S-A-R-E-A-N.org. And then you'll find all the uh, information. You'll find uh, we're helping. And, uh, you know, without being uh, too pious, just please pray. I mean, if you could help financially, that's great. But please, please pray. That's the that's the critical thing. Well, thanks again, Father Ben. Thank you both. God bless you. Thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, select Modern Age articles, ISI books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI.